Please turn in your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And let's read once again together Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray once again together. Our Father in heaven, please speak to us from your word this morning. We pray that what we know not, you would teach us, what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, O Lord, that you would make us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. I wonder if you ever wonder in your life or in the world uh, what it is that God is up to. Do you ever find yourself asking that question? Uh, Lord, what are you doing? Uh, what's What's your plan? What's your purpose, your goal here? What is it? that you're trying to do. Uh, We might ask that on a large scale as we look out in the world and as we contemplate uh, the events of the world and the movements that are taking place in various uh, nations. We might ask the question, Lord, what what are you doing uh, in Asia? What are you doing in the United States? What are you doing in Europe? What is is your plan? Where is your providence taking us? Where Where are we going? You might ask that on a much more intimate and personal level. As you contemplate the events of your life, as you contemplate perhaps various difficulties, trials that you're going through, you might think, Lord, why am I going through this? Uh, in the most extreme case, you might find yourself in a position like Job, facing some, some terrible uh, calamity. And you may think, Lord, what is your plan? Uh, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What is your goal in all of this? I, I know that you're working all things together for the good of your people, but, but I need something more specific than that. What is it that you're trying to do through these events in my life? Oh, it's maybe one of the most challenging things in the Christian life, that we don't always get answers to those questions. Uh, God does not promise, at least presently, to give us answers to every question we might have about his providence and about his uh, sovereign rule over the world and his orchestration of events. Uh, The fact is, we don't get answers to every single question. And yet, I think it's wonderful uh, that God in his kindness has revealed a great deal of his will for us personally, and his will for the world, and his will for his church. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. It talks about this mystery of God's will that has now, there for those Ephesians, it's been revealed. God has clued these Ephesians into what it is that he is up to in the world. He's given them answers. What is it that, 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 that God is doing? What is his purposes for us as a church? What are his purposes for his people? In Ephesians 1, we get answers to these questions. If you've been with us, you know that we purpose to take three visits to the land of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. Three sort of scans of these verses. And each time we've approached this text, we've tried to see different things. We've tried to answer different questions. First time we came to Ephesians chapter 1, we asked the question, uh, what are these spiritual blessings that were given in Christ? And then the second question was, 
how is it that we come by these blessings? How is it that we get these blessings? And it is, of course, through our, our union with Christ, just through being united and attached to Him and being found in Him that we experience the great blessings of adoption, of redemption, of forgiveness of sins, of election, of the sealing of the Spirit and others. And then last week, uh, we asked the question, well, where did our salvation come from? What was the origin or the purpose or the foundation of our salvation? And we provided three answers to that question. Last week, we saw that our salvation, first of all, had its origins in the love of God. Verse 4 leading into verse 5 says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons. It was that God, before the foundations of the world, out of love, set His mind on particular people to save them. That was the purpose of His will. And that's why now in time, people are being saved. It's because God set His love on them in eternity past. But then we provided a second answer. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that the origin was also according to the grace of God. Uh, There was grace found in God. And it was according to His grace that He moved to save people. It was not on the basis of merit. It's not that He evaluated particular applications to His grace, to His favor. But rather, He moved purely upon His grace to save men and women. But there was a third answer that received a little bit more attention. And that was that our salvation... Every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ Jesus has its foundation in the eternal purpose, plan, and will of God. And we spent a great deal of our time talking about what that means in Ephesians chapter 1. Well, now we come to ask a new question, a third and final question of this text before we move on to the verses that follow. We want to ask this question. We're told that we're given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The question we want to ask is why? Why were we given these blessings in Christ Jesus? God moved in eternity past and then in time, in the present, to bring about election and adoption and redemption and the forgiveness of sins and wisdom and insight and revelation for His people and a sealing of the Spirit. Well, why did He do all of that? This goes back to to the first question I asked at the beginning of the service. Why God is a question we might ask sometimes. Well, we can ask God, according to this text, why is it that you're doing all this? Why is it that we've received these blessings? What is your purpose in all of this? What's your purpose in your people and in your church and in your great gospel of salvation for all who believe? We're not left without answers. God reveals to us what he calls the, the mystery of his will. It is disclosed to us in Ephesians chapter 1. And you could imagine these Ephesian people gathered around to hear the reading of this letter, saved from all sorts of backgrounds, still piecing together what it means to follow Jesus of Nazareth and to be a disciple of him and to believe now in the God Jehovah of the Bible. And they come and they gather around and Paul reveals to them as a called apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who had seen the risen Lord, he now reveals to them the mystery of God's will in bringing about their salvation. It's not a coincidence uh, that there are three points to every one of my sermons. There just happen to be three uh, uh, points in each of these texts, three answers to each of these questions. So characteristically this morning, we're going to give three answers to the question, why is it that Christians, God's people, have been given these spiritual blessings in Christ? Three answers. The first is so that we would be holy. So that we would be holy. The second is so that Christ would get glory. And the third is that all things would be united in Christ. That we would be holy, that Christ would get glory, and thirdly, that all things would be united in Christ. First of all, why were we given these spiritual blessings in Christ? So that we would be holy. Please look again at verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. For what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. We see in these verses that one of God's designs in saving His people, in giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ, is that we would be holy and blameless before Him. These words, holy and blameless, words that would routinely be used in the Old Testament to describe various sacrifices that were offered, and it was also how God wanted His people uh, to conduct themselves in holiness and blamelessness. Well, it doesn't change now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, in the Gospel era. God's designs in saving His people, at least one of them is, so that they would be holy and blameless before Him. Now, there's reason to believe in the text that 
probably this is referring to the greatest degree to that great day when all of God's people will be presented to Christ without sin. Uh, We considered some weeks ago, we had a a topical sermon out of Ephesians 5, and we talked about the beauty of the bride of Christ, and we talked about how Jesus' purposes are to present to himself a bride who is without spot or blemish or wrinkle. The analogy I used was a, a bride on her wedding day who has that wedding dress, and and, and, and that dress is pristine and beautiful and has no blemish on it. We've tried to iron out every wrinkle and it is just in perfect condition. Well, the Lord Jesus is jealous to present to himself a bride who is without any stain of sin, any wrinkle of division, uh, any spot of wickedness or unrighteousness. God wants to present to his son, Jesus Christ, a bride who is holy and blameless before him. But I don't think... The idea of this final day that's to come when the bride and all God's people will be presented holy and blameless before him, I don't think that precludes the pursuit of holiness and blamelessness today in the present. It's not as though we're converted to this purpose, but we do nothing in the present to pursue it now. You know, we we sin, we carry on our lives in wickedness and in darkness, but one day that's all going to change. Now, the Lord Jesus wants his people to be marked by a certain quality of holiness and blamelessness, and therefore the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of obedience to God's revealed commands, God's revealed will, ought to be a top-level priority for God's people because one of his purposes in saving them is that they would be holy and blameless before him. Now allow me to take a brief time out and and, and take an excursus on this issue for a second. I think uh, that this is a big, 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 big problem the evangelical church in America today. Uh, The idea that uh, we're saved by grace and therefore we're not under the law and we can live however we like. If you want the theological phrase, we call that antinomianism. Anti meaning like against. uh, Nomianism coming from nomos, which means law, against the law. It's this idea that that people can, can, can come to God by grace and um, whether they live in a way that conforms to Christ's uh, precepts and, and the way in which he wants his people to live, that's really a matter of indifference. Uh, we just keep re- repenting, confessing our sins, and we'll be all right. Okay? And so you'll hear things every now and again, uh, sort of cliches. At least I hear them, especially from younger people, but it's not limited to younger people. These sort of false antitheses and dichotomies. This, this sort of, um, you know, Christianity is about a relationship, not a religion. You ever heard that one? Christianity is not about religion and rules and do's and don'ts and institutions. It's about a relationship uh, with Jesus. Uh, Christianity is, is, is not about uh, just obedience. It's about, it's about faith. It's about, it's about love. It's about living out and realizing love. And it's not so much about obedience. Um, another way that can be put is, is Christianity is, 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 is about... Um, it's about... You've got to feel. It's about a relationship. It's about an ethos. It's about... A relationship, and it's not so much about do's and don'ts, okay? Well, listen, I want to submit to you that those overly simplistic sort of trite cliches distort the message of the Bible. Uh, Those sort of cliches create false gods in our hearts and distort the message of the Scriptures. There's a sense in which, of course, we can say we are under grace and not under law. That is, of course, true. But uninterpreted, that could lead people into a host of errors. Yeah, there's a sense in which, yeah, Christianity is, of course, about a relationship. It's not principally about a religion. But that statement just put out there, uninterpreted, could lead us into great distortions of the truth. The fact of the matter is, holiness, righteousness, obedience to God's law, delighting to do His will, these are good things. And we should never talk about the law about God's commandments, and about His will in such a way that will lead anyone to believe that to obey God, to pursue holiness and blamelessness before the Lord is somehow legalism. Or somehow trying to just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and present yourself to God on your own merit. Jesus died so that He could present Himself a bride who is holy and blameless before Him without spot or wrinkle. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he's meditating day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water. Everything he does will prosper. The image is is David can't even go to bed without delighting in God's law. What are your thoughts when the lights go out and you're lying in bed? 
Do you think God's ways are good? His precepts are right. I delight in the law of God. And I'm going to, how could I better serve the Lord? How could I better conform my life to his very good and true standards? Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. Goes on to say it's sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. More to be desired is, is God's precepts than gold, even much fine gold. It's good, it's sweet, it's valuable, it's precious. But that's all Old Testament, you say. Things are different now. We're, we're in the age of grace. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 17 and following, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. He goes on to say, even not one jot or one yoda will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. The law is holy. The commandment holy, just, and good. 1 John 5, the Apostle John says, this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and that His commandments are not burdensome to us. That's what it means to love God. We love His commandments and they're not burdensome to us. His yoke is easy, His burden is light, and we find rest for our souls in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus Himself in Psalm chapter 40, which is a messianic psalm we're told that talks about Jesus, it's taken up in Hebrews chapter 10. It says this of Jesus, I delight to do the law of God. Your law is continually within my heart. I say all of that to say this, brothers and sisters, you were made, you were saved, you were brought to Christ. You are in Him, united to Him now, in part to pursue holiness and blamelessness before the Lord. The pursuit of Christ-likeness, the pursuit of conformity to God's Word, the pursuit of holy character, that is a good thing. Not because we find merit in that, not because God is necessarily uh, going to behave toward us in a completely different way at the day of judgment because of that, but because it pleases God. Part of the reason He saved you is so that you would be holy and blameless before Him. I talk to young people all the time who are asking this question, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will you want me to do? Well, I can't always answer that question for them. In fact, I can never answer that question for them because I'm not the Lord. But one thing I can say is part of that plan is that you would grow in conformity to Christ's precepts and that you would become increasingly more holy and blameless. Now, I understand this is sometimes hard to navigate because the line, you know, as, as to when we're relying on our works, on our holiness before the Lord, and when we're uh, uh, pursuing uh, holiness in a way that is relying on God's grace and is filled with faith, that's, that's kind of hard to navigate sometimes. So one text I want to turn you to now in Ephesians, as Paul opens this up more, is Ephesians chapter 2. I found that this text in Ephesians chapter 2, very familiar, verses 8 through 10, really helps us navigate this issue of the place of obedience and works in the Christian life. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Prepositions in the Bible are so important. Okay? And this is why we do expositional preaching, okay? Look at verse 9. Our salvation, we're told, is not of works. It's not a result of works. That preposition, of. The idea is that the basis of our salvation is not our performance. It's not our ability to obey or our track record in obedience. It's not of works. But then you get to verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for works. For works. The idea is that of purpose. Not saved of works. Never saved of works but always save four works. And this should not scare us. This should encourage us. Because the idea is that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and God is carrying out a purpose in us of doing good works that he's prepared beforehand. So often, the way I'll counsel college students is, you know the Lord has prepared for you good works that you're supposed to walk in. Now you have to find them out. What good works has God called you to? What ways of serving Christ and honoring Him and following His Word has he, he called you to in a special measure in your life? He has prepared good works for you. That you would walk in them. And what a wonderful thing. This word workmanship, we're His workmanship in Christ Jesus. Greek word poema literally means masterpiece. We're God's masterpiece. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's a glorious thing. I don't really feel like God's masterpiece. I don't feel like His workmanship. 
But I can have hope that God is carrying out His good purposes in me, that He's fashioning me, that He's preparing me for good works that He prepared beforehand, that I should walk in them. And it would be an appropriate prayer for each one of us. What good works, Lord, are you leading me in? Lord, how could I be more holy and blameless before you? What, what wrinkles are there on my dress as part of your bride? What spots and blemishes am I responsible for? And how can I work washing them out and becoming more like my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Holiness and blamelessness before the Lord is a good thing. And it is one of the purposes for which God saved us, that we would be holy and blameless before him. But now secondly, secondly, why is it that we have these spiritual blessings in Christ? Secondly, it is so that Christ would get glory. So that Christ would get glory. Please look at verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Look down at verse 11, if you would. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And here it is again, to the praise of His glory. And we talked about this great deal last week and so I won't spend as much time this week on this idea but one of the reasons we're given in our text for the salvation that we enjoy in Christ is so that we would be that we would be to the praise of his glorious grace so that we would bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ and I said last week that we have to have a really good handle on this in our lives that the great purpose in God saving us is not primarily so that we would be eternally happy but that Christ would be eternally glorified. But then I also said that our eternal happiness, our joy, is not at odds with the glory of Christ. To be satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ, to find our soul's delight in Him, is the greatest experience anyone could have. To find your soul's delight in the Lord is good. To see His glory revealed, His beauty revealed, and to worship and glorify Him in the face of that beauty and that glory is the greatest experience of any human heart. And so wonderfully, our happiness and God's glory in Christ are tied up together. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing. Uh, That the Lord does not call us to austerity and deprivation. But he calls us to a greater joy. And that is joy in the Lord Jesus. Joy in paradise in the splendor and glory and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should help us in our fight against sin. Help us in our worship. Should help us in our commitment to the Christian faith. That when I am saying no to the pleasures of sin, I'm saying yes to finding pleasure and joy and satisfaction in Christ. Psalm 16, at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. You will lift me up with joy in your presence. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who surveys a field, finds treasure hidden in a field. What does he do? He goes and sells all he has so that he could buy that field. Anything we give up or sacrifice in this life, any passing worldly sinful pleasure that we give up is for the greater treasure and pleasure of the kingdom of Christ and his glory. And we are saved, brothers and sisters, so that in glory for all eternity, and also in the present now, that we would be the praise, the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the reasons that you were created, one of the reasons that you were saved, is so that we would do just what we're doing today, praising, glorifying our Savior. What we will do in, our, in, in its fullness on the last day, when we gather around the throne of the Lamb and worship Him with the great company of all of God's people, throughout history when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now just say this, there's all sorts of things I pray for and hope for for Emmanuel Church. There's a lot of things we're going to have to wait on, okay? We're, we're, we can only do one thing at a time, we can only grow little by little. We're trying to get better each week, we're trying to uh, explore ways that we can minister in this community, but something we can do right now that I hope we're doing 50 years from now, is we can come together, gather together, and praise and worship God. 
God can receive glory and honor from our lips now. We're small, insignificant, unimpressive to most people. But we can gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and worship God. We don't have to wait to do that. We don't need a bigger uh, band up here to really do that. Okay? Uh, we don't need better sound equipment. We don't need a more um, aesthetically pleasing room to do that. All we need is the gathering of God's people and His Holy Spirit. And a voice helps. To sing praise to our God and to bring glory to Him. That's one of the reasons He saved us. That we would be holy and blameless, but also that we would be to the praise of His glorious grace. And I'll just testify, it's been really sweet to worship God with you. It's been sweet to gather here and to sing with you. It's been sweet to gather here and to pray with you. Uh, It's been sweet to call on the name of the Lord with you and to extol the name of the Lord. We, We don't have to wait to do that. We do that every week. And I hope that we do it for generations to come in this assembly. But now thirdly, the third purpose we're given in this text for why it is the Lord has saved His people, why He's given them every spiritual blessing in Christ, it is this. So that all things would be united in Christ. So that all things would be united, or maybe your translation says reconciled in Christ or summed up in Christ, so that all things would be united in Christ. Please look with me at verse 9 and 10. And I'll just remind you, as uh, we're studying the book of Ephesians, verses 9 and 10 are very much like the thesis statement of the book of Ephesians. I think the major message of the book is contained in verses 9 and 10. He has made known to us the mystery of His will. What are you doing, Lord? What are you doing in the world? What is your will? He has made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here it is. To unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. You may remember I said in the previous sermon uh, what this sort of includes. It includes the uniting of Uh, Jew and Gentile, the uniting of individual believers united to Christ and the establishment of a new moral order, all those sort of major themes of the book. But here in the very beginning, Paul is setting out the purpose. This is what Christ is doing in the world. This is what God is doing in Christ. He's uniting all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. Now I'm sympathetic that that's a little more abstract and hard to understand than the first two points I gave. We should be holy. Simple enough. Okay, Get better killing our sin, be more like Christ, okay, Uh, that Christ would get glory. Simple enough, we worship, we praise Him, we give our lives to Him, okay, that we should unite, that, 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 that God is uniting all things in Christ, that seems a little abstract. And what exactly does that mean? To, to sum up all things in Christ? To reconcile all things? What does that mean? Like, like, like nations, trees, material thing? What are we talking about? We talk about uniting all things in Christ. My goal, the time remaining, is to help you understand what this profound phrase means, to unite all things in Christ. Last week I mentioned that this language, unite, this word unite, literally is translated to sum up. Uh, It's basically, there's one other sort of convoluted usage of the word in the New Testament, but basically it's unique uh, to scriptural material. It's sort of the idea we think of how, how a lawyer or an orator might sum up an argument, bring an argument to its conclusion and climax. Okay? That's what it means to unite or sum up all things in Christ. And I believe that this uniting of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, includes at least five things. At least five things. And we're going to see each one of these things in the book of Ephesians. So consider this sort of a forecast for where we're going in our study of Ephesians. What does it mean to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth? It comprehends at least five things. The first is this. The salvation of individuals from various backgrounds, cultures, and nations. What is Christ doing in uniting all things to himself? First of all, he's uniting individual people to him. He's drawing people into union with Christ. He's taking formerly children of wrath and sinners and people lost in darkness and he's bringing them into union with himself. Individual people are being united to Christ. Let me ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 again. Ephesians chapter 2. And let's see how Paul shows us this in verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. It's either with Christ or in Christ. It's through Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. There it is again, in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Individual people of various backgrounds and cultures who walked in darkness and in sin, who were children of wrath, who were sons of disobedience, who followed the way of the prince of the power of the air, who I believe to be Satan. These people were in time united to the Lord Jesus. They have now been raised up with him. And they now experience the riches of his grace because they have been united to Christ. That at the most basic level is what it means that God is uniting all things in Christ. He's uniting individuals, various backgrounds and cultures. But now secondly, and maybe more prominently in the book of Ephesians, what is, Christ, what is God doing in uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth? He's doing this. He is reconciling Jew and Gentile. He is reconciling Jew and Gentile. These Jews and Gentiles now form a new community, which is marked supremely by unity in Christ. What is it that God is doing in Christ and uniting all things in Him? He's breaking down dividing walls and He's reconciling people. And in those early days after the ministry of Jesus, it was this reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. That is every human being in the world, Jew and Gentile. They all fall under one of those categories. And what God was doing in Christ was drawing these two groups together. I think at this stage in history, it would be impossible for us to understand or enter into the division, the alienation that existed between Jews and Gentiles. I don't know that there's anything we can imagine in our present culture that was more strong than this sort of division and alienation. The Jews at one time believed that the, that the nations, the Gentiles, that they were under the curse of God. I mean, it was, it was wrong, according to God's law, to even intermarry with someone from a Gentile culture or nation. And now they're being told this is the mystery of God's will, that in time, that in Christ, he's bringing these groups together. He's uniting them. He has broken down the dividing wall of separation such that now the Gentiles are included. He's reconciling Jew and Gentile. And you know that sort of speculative illustration I used of the Ephesian context. First converts were probably Jews, though they probably made up the minority of the church after the gospel came in its fullness to the Ephesian region. And you probably had a very pious Jewish man who all his life had sought to follow the Torah. And he's standing there next to former uh, uh, witch who practiced black arts and black magic and was devoted to the worship of the temple goddess Artemis. And perhaps you had a wonderful uh, 18-year-old Jewish girl who all her life had pursued purity. She's a virgin. And there she is worshiping God next to someone who was a temple prostitute and had now been brought near by the blood of Christ and had been included into the community of God's people. That would have been radical. So radical. Well, it's this mystery of God's will that's revealed in the book of Ephesians that this is God's plan. He's reconciling Jew and Gentile. What I want to impress upon you is I don't think there's any division that we could imagine in the 21st century that is greater than the division that existed between Jew and Gentile, which means there ought to be no division, no preference, no dividing wall, no obstacles presented in the church of Jesus Christ because he's broken down the dividing wall. And therefore, people from various backgrounds and cultures, various socioeconomic groups, uh, people who land on different places on the social strata, they should be able to enter into a community of God's people and find unity in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has abolished the wall of separation. And if Jews and Gentiles can worship together, black and white could worship together, rich and poor can worship together, men and women can worship together, old and young can worship together, God's people should be united in Christ Jesus. And what is the great equalizer? We were all children of wrath. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We all walked once according to the prince of the power of the air. 
And we have all, those of us who are in Christ, have received grace through the unilateral action of God. Not because we measured up. Not because we learned enough stuff. We're not here because we deserve to be here. We're here because God has done a work in Christ. And He's brought you near by His blood. And therefore, we can worship with anybody. God's people are united. And the dominant, the supreme ethos, the, the governing principle in Christ's church is to be unity. And we're going to see that, as we, especially when we get into Ephesians 4, where Paul prays for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God's people are to be one. Now thirdly, thirdly, the third thing that is comprehended in this uniting of all things in Christ, and it involves the salvation of individuals, it involves the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile, and the formation of a new community where unity prevails. But now thirdly, there is the establishment of a new moral order. The establishment of a new moral order in which Christ leads his people in holiness. The establishment of a new moral order. I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We want to read verses 17 through 24. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Christ has established in his kingdom, in his people, in his church, a new moral order. Verse 17 of chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Let me just make an explanatory comment at this point. It's not that that Paul is addressing Jews and now he's singing out the Gentiles and don't do what they do. Think of it as as someone coming and addressing us and saying, "Don't, don't behave like like most Americans do. Don't, don't behave like, like people who are living for the American dream. Okay? That's what he means when he says, don't, don't, don't walk in the futility of your minds as the Gentiles do. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying there's a new moral order. He's going to go after all sorts of things. He's going to say, let him who stole that thing that governed your life before. Well, now you're in Christ. You steal no longer. You people who are consumed with anger and bitterness, don't go to bed on your anger. You people who allow corrupt talk to come out of your mouth, that's part of your former life. That ought not to be named among God's people. You people who practice fornication, went down to visit those temple prostitutes, now you're to walk in purity. What's the point? There's a new moral order. You're united in Christ. And he's in effect saying, live out your union with Christ. Become who you are. You didn't learn Christ that way. When you behave in immoral ways, you didn't get that from Jesus. You're united to Christ, and therefore your behavior, your conduct ought to change. This is what God is doing. In uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth, He's sanctifying people. And He's teaching them how to live in this new moral order, and He goes before them in holiness. We need to move much more quickly. Now to the fourth. This idea of uniting all things in Christ, what does it include? Fourthly, renewal in interpersonal relationships. I'll be very brief here. Renewal in interpersonal relationships. We're going to see in the book of Ephesians that all these different relationships are envisioned and our union with Christ, being in Christ, is to inform the way we carry out all all these relationships. Most basically, there's the relationship between Jew and Gentile. They're to love each other. They're to be united. But there's also the relationship in Ephesians 5 of husband and wife. How is a husband in Christ supposed to behave toward his wife? How is a wife who is in Christ supposed to relate toward her husband? There's also children and parents. They are to obey their parents, Paul says, in the Lord, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this. What does it mean to obey your parents in union with Christ? That relationship is to be renewed through Christ. Slaves and masters. A little bit harder for us to wrap our minds around this, but in Ephesians 6, Paul says, you being united to Christ, being in Christ, has implications for how you behave. You masters toward your slaves, and you slaves toward your masters. 
And most obviously, people with differing backgrounds, people with different experiences were given insight into how we're to behave toward one another. But now, fifthly and finally, what does it mean to unite all things in Christ? Fifthly, it is the establishment of spiritual order to the cosmos. Spiritual order to the universe. We're going to spend more time talking about this next week and just to whet your appetite. Let me ask that we read together Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. One of the things Christ is doing is he is establishing order to the spiritual realm. These great spiritual powers, these forces of darkness, Christ is bringing about order. He's saying, enough. You submit to me, and he is bringing about the subjugation of spiritual powers. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. I think that being above every name that is named, that is God triumphing over Artemis. God triumphing over demonic powers. God triumphing over Satan. I read in my, my devotions this week a passage I had really forgotten about. In 1 Samuel, I want to say it's chapter 4 or 5. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken away by the Philistines, that, that great symbol. And uh, that, great, that great institution in Jewish religion, the Ark of the Covenant is gone. And God's people are mourning. And the Philistines have it. And they just think the glory of the Lord has left his people. And there's this, uh, 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 this, this scene where the Ark of the Covenant is brought into this Philistine temple. And it's set before the god, um, I think it's Dagon, or Dagon, something like that. And he's sort of this dragon god or whatever. And he's there. And uh, what the Lord does is amazing. <laughs> Uh, what's symbolized there for us. Philistines said it there. It's sort of like, like, ha ha, our God has triumphed over the God of Israel. What happens is they go to bed, they come back in the temple, and Dagon has his face in the dirt. And they think, that's a little odd. It must have fallen over. Let's set it back up. And then they go home and they sleep and they come back to the temple and Dagon's head is cut off. And it's bowing before the ark of the Lord. And what's the symbol there? God triumphs over every name that is named. God is above every rule and power and authority in the spiritual places. He triumphs over false gods. He triumphs over idols. He triumphs over demons. He triumphs over Satan. Everything is being united in Christ. Things in heaven, the heavenly realms, and things on earth. And God will have his glory in Christ in the spiritual realm where Christ is subjugating these spiritual forces. Well, now as we conclude... I have three implications for us from what we've considered today in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll try to move quickly here. From Ephesians 1, three implications for us. Because God, in Christ, is trying to bring about our holiness and our blamelessness, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, each one of you, to be serious about the pursuit of holiness. Let us be serious joyfully serious about the pursuit of holiness. Christ died to purchase for himself a bride who he could present to himself without spot or blemish. If you're walking in sin and in unrighteousness, I want you to hear me today. That is not the way you learned Christ. If we're walking according to our old self, that's not how we learned Christ. Christ wants his people to be holy and blameless Therefore, what could be more worthwhile, more worth your attention, more worth your energy, more worth your prayer, more worth your meditation at night on your bed than how you might be more like Christ, more holy, more blameless, more sanctified before Him. This is worth our time, our effort, our energy, and our prayer. It ought to be a priority in our lives. How could I be more holy? How could I just get better at not sinning? 
How can I make progress? How can I improve? Because this is well-pleasing to God. He is not pleased with sin. He's pleased when we obey Him and live in fellowship with Him and pursue holiness. How can I do this? How can I get better at this? How can I maybe bring brothers and sisters in my life to help me? How can I rearrange my prayer life so that holiness is more a priority? How can I discipline myself according to the grace of God so that I might live in holiness before the Lord? Holiness, Christ-likeness, the mortification of sin, conformity to God's law, those ought to be high priorities in our lives. And maybe for some of us, we just need to start taking baby steps. Let's take a baby steps approach. One thing I've begun doing for my New Year's resolutions the last four or five years is I single out one particular sin. There's so many in my life that I'm discouraged by, but what's one particular sin that's dogging me? And I commit myself before the Lord to make some measure of discernible, observable progress in defeating that sin. So far, it has never led to the complete evisceration of that sin from my life, but it's been a holy exercise. I just want to get better at honoring the Lord. Not because I'm a legalist. Not because, because we believe that if I get better at not sinning, the Lord's going to receive me on the basis of that. But because God is pleased with obedience. Oh, may we purpose to make progress in holiness and growth in grace and growth in Christ's likeness. Secondly, second implication for us. We need to understand that we exist for the glory of Christ. He has saved us for His own glory. Now that seems like you're just presenting another doctrine, Alex. This is time for application implication. Listen, this is highly practical. It affects the decisions that we make. It affects the way we arrange our lives. It affects the way we teach our kids. It affects the way we speak to our spouse. We live for the glory of Christ. And that should affect the way we view our money. The way we view our time. Am I organizing in my time in a way that maximizes the ways in which I could bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I purposing to arrange my life, my calling, my vocation, my family in a way that brings honor and glory to Christ? Husbands and wives, do you ever have this conversation when you're together, when you're trying to make a decision? Does it ever enter the equation, honey, what would bring the most honor to Christ? Thinking about a house to buy, you're thinking about a financial maneuver, you're thinking about where to send your kids to school. What would bring the most glory to Christ? Because after all, isn't that why we live? Let's not make worldly decisions. Let's not be unspiritual. We make decisions. We live our lives to the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's act like it. Let's let that be the defining, navigating compass in our lives. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's why He has saved us. That we would bring glory to Christ. But now thirdly and finally, we must recognize that part of the Christian message is that God is making all things new in Christ. He's uniting all things. He's making all things new in Christ. And it's this message that the world needs to hear. Part of the gospel is that God is making all things new in Christ. And I think the world needs to hear this. Now as much as ever, maybe even more than ever. In a world of division, Christ brings unity. In a world of darkness, Christ brings light. In a world of fracture and dislocation, Christ brings harmony. In a world of sin, Christ brings righteousness. People need to hear this. In a world of brokenness and pain, Christ brings healing. He's making all things new. What good news. What good news. Such a broken world, such a dark world. But Christ is changing everything. He makes all things new. I don't know about you... But I don't, when I look at the world, I, I'm not very encouraged. A lot of people think they see progress, they think things are getting better. I, I, don't, I don't see that. Okay? We had this thing called the Enlightenment, Industrial Revolution, and out of that was birthed this other thing called progressivism that emerged in the latter 19th century and pretty much dominated the 20th century. And it was based on this idea of human progress. It was based on a very optimistic view of human nature and human progress. And that if you just put man in the right social environment, that if he's given proper education, uh, we're going to always be getting better. We're going to make progress. Very optimistic view of human nature. I think the 20th century saw the experiment of progressivism. And where did it leave us? Suicide rates are higher in 2017 than they were in 1900. Homicide rates are higher in 2017 than they were in 1900. 
We still have wars. Now we have this thing called terrorism, nuclear threat. Have we really narrowed the gap in the area of racial divides, cultural divides? I mean, has the world improved? Is man getting better? Are we making progress? I see nothing but fracture and dislocation and a lack of harmony. I see a world full of pain. I see a world full of sin. Christ is making all things new. And if you're here, you don't know the Lord. You need to know that. This world has nothing to offer you but brokenness. Christ offers a new way, a new world. He is true. He is right. He's uniting all things in Him. He's making all things new. And you could be part of that. You could be united to Christ today through faith and repentance. You could have the Lord Jesus. You could be made new yourself. You could become a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. As you share the gospel, as you convey the gospel, don't miss this piece. Christ is making all things new. He brings light to darkness. He brings healing to brokenness. He brings light and life, salvation and forgiveness. Christ is making all things new. And each one of us can be caught up into that work that God is doing in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing to us what was formerly a mystery. Thank you for revealing to us the mystery of your will. That you are saving people. That you're giving them every spiritual blessing through being united to Christ. Finding salvation in Him. And you are working in your people in your church to bring about holiness and blamelessness. That you are working in your people and in your church in the salvation of the lost to bring about the praise and glory of Christ. And you're doing this work that it's hard for us even to wrap our minds around it, of uniting all things in Him. We know at the least it means that you are making all things new as you promised. You are drawing people in the kingdom of Christ. And you are uniting people who formerly were alienated from one another, who outside of Christ would have hated one another. But in the church, they're united. You brought about this new moral order where your good ways, your good precepts are brought to us and we're actually given the grace to change and to grow and to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow in holiness. And Lord, you are doing this work in Jesus of conquering and defeating all false gods and all spiritual powers and even Satan himself. What a glorious work. We pray that more would be included in this. That more would see the beauty of the Christian way that Christ is making all things new. And may that come, something that is sweet and precious and wonderful to those hearts in this room who have never believed the gospel. May you persuade them that all they must do is repent and believe. And they too could be made new. They could be renewed. And they could have all that Christ offers. And that their hearts too could find eternal, perfect, lasting joy and delight in the glory and majesty and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this glorious gospel, this glorious salvation. In Christ's name. Amen.